0: Well, we come now to the last of the oracles in Isaiah's book of burdens. Chapter 23, verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Zidon. Your messengers crossed the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river, was her revenue, and she was the market of the nations. The ancient city of Tyre is the focus of this final burden that the Lord brings through Isaiah. Remember, it is a burden for Isaiah because though these are, for the most part, with the exception of Jerusalem, these are all foreign nations and for the most part pagan nations, it still broke the heart of Isaiah the prophet to have to bring these warnings, these woes to the people. And I have really been stunned by that. You'll see even more as we go in the next couple of chapters of how Isaiah, he wasn't a stone-cold prophet. I don't know if there is such a thing. To have the Word of the Lord in your life and in your heart and affecting how you think cannot leave you stone cold. You can't take in God's Word and then go out into the world and not have compassion for fallenness and for, for heathenism and paganism and for people who are bound up by their own sin. We should not come out of Bible study more judgmental, but the exact opposite. Less judgmental and more desiring to see people redeemed, even as we ourselves have been redeemed. And Isaiah, what, what an example of this, bearing these burdens. And so this burden of Tyre, the ancient city of Tyre in Isaiah's day was the greatest commercial seaport in the world. It was an epic place, truly. The original settlers were the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were a progressive people driven by their desire for commerce. They were heads and tails above or ahead of where many people were in their own day. The Phoenicians were merchants. Most of them came out of Tyre's mother city, which was Zidon. But though Zidon came first and Tyre followed, Tyre would soon surpass Zidon in being an absolutely remarkable port city through its trade and commerce and 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 purchasing and buying and exporting and importing all went on through this this great city of Tyre in fact this amazing seaport was built partially on land on the coast, the Mediterranean coast and also on an island that was right off the coast and it was connected by a massive stone causeway I mean just the sheer brilliance in, in building that back in the day the Phoenicians in the city of Tyre they were some of the most inventive people They developed, by the way, the Phoenicians developed the first alphabet. They were the ones who, while most of the world was still writing in pictographs or hieroglyphics, it was the Phoenicians who had an actual lettering system. They were writing in full sentences while most of the rest of the world were using pictures. Our own alphabet, the English alphabet, is in many ways handed down from the Phoenician alphabet. We have similar, if you, if you look at old Phoenician writings and compare it to our alphabet, a lot of the letters look very similar even today. Pretty remarkable. So Tyre and the Phoenician colonies were considered the greatest maritime and trading empire of antiquity. You need to understand that going into this prophecy. If you lived then, you would have a hard time believing this prophecy. You'd read what Isaiah is about to tell us. You would hear this woe, this burden of how Tyre is about to be taken down. You'd look at the massive seaport and say, no way. Uh-uh. There's no way this is going to just disappear. There's, who, who could devastate such a, a remarkable place? But this burden, like every burden before it in this section, was fulfilled to the letter, as we will see. The oracle begins with a call to the ships of Tarshish to weep and to wail. Okay, so what is Tarshish? That's not Tyre. Tyre's the, the seaport. So what's Tarshish? Well, we know that they came from Noah's son Shem. So we draw back again, as we've done a few times recently, to the table of nations. Where's the table of nations, Bible students? Genesis what? 10. Genesis chapter 10. Remember that. It's a place to go. You find a name in the Bible and you're unsure? Go back to the table of nations. Oftentimes, you'll find a a remnant of it there. And we do. Genesis chapter 10, verse 4 in the table says, The sons of Yavon, Shem's third son, were Elisha and Tarshish, Ketim and Dodanim. Two of these sons, or at least the people who are the offspring of these two sons of Shem, are mentioned right here in this woe, in this, in this burden. Uh, the first one I'll just mention is Cyprus. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. That's Katim, Cyprus and Katim, same thing. Uh, it's the, the island of Cyprus today. The Mediterranean island is kind of to the northwest of Israel. Now, to reach Tarshish again you Bible students may remember this you had to board a sailing vessel and head west and the reason you might remember that is there was another prophet who wanted to go to Tarshish he wasn't supposed to he was supposed to head to Nineveh God said go to Nineveh Jonah head east Jonah said now's a good time for a little Mediterranean cruise (laughs) so he hopped on a boat in Joppa, and he began to sail west toward Tarshish until God bought him passage in the belly of a fish for the three-day journey back. His uh, debarkment from that passage was rather disgusting. All right. Some think that Tarshish, because of this, you would head west, sail west, they thought it was Spain. And Spain is a likely possibility to Tarshish. In Ezekiel's prophetic lament over Tyre, which we will see this when we get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 27, verse 12, he mentions Tarshish as well. He's lamenting Tyre, but he says, Tarshish was your customer. Because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, with silver and iron and tin and lead, they paid for your wares. So that tells us something about Tarshish. Tarshish was a producer of these things. Silver, iron, tin, and lead. And we know historically these four metals were mined first in the mines of Spain and in another western island country, a western island whose name literally means the land of tin, Great Britain. Britannia means the land of tin. That was where tin was first mined in the world. So these metals were mined... Either Spain or Great Britain or perhaps both, that may have been an extension of Tyre or or Tarshish and brought across the Mediterranean to be traded through the seaport city of Tyre. So what happens to Tyre is going to have dramatic impact on the civilized world. In fact, it continues. We see in verse 3 that the grain of the Nile and the harvest of the river was her revenue. The harvest of the river. The river, when it just says the river in the Bible, it's usually the Euphrates, The Nile obviously is there in Egypt, so you've got both the Euphrates and all the produce that would come from there. You've got all the produce that was grown in the Nile River Valley that would come up the Nile into the Mediterranean and sail right on up to that coastal seaport of Tyre. You have ships coming across from Tarshish. Everybody's going to Tyre. It's a good place to retire eventually, someday. There are so many puns we could do with Tyre. I'm not going to mess with them tonight. Just let you know ahead of time. Don't wait for them. They're not going to happen. We just need to keep our tires on the road here and, and go forward. So all of these different nations, that's where they congregated. That's where they met. That's where the trade route was. The central place, the city of Tyre. And it would devastate not just Tyre, but when this city went down, it would devastate global trade. It would devastate the global economy. There was one in those days, as there is today. And so this judgment against Tyre is far bigger than against a single city or nation. Verse 4, Be ashamed, O Zidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea Saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. What in the world is that talking about? The stronghold of the sea, or literally the fortress of the sea, is Tyre. Alright, that's referring, that phrase is referring to Tyre. And it means, in essence, this verse means that Tyre will become barren. Tyre will not be able to produce. Or be the producer of offspring. There's not going to be any more commercial trade going through Tyre. In fact, the ships of the sea have nowhere to berth. <laughs> Pun intended there. <laughs> Verse 5. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city? whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places, who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were on the honored of the earth, who indeed the Lord of hosts has planned this, to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Gang, the glory of God is the recurring theme of Isaiah. Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel, does not share his glory with anyone. And whenever man begins to rise up, whenever mankind begins to consider itself glorified based on its own hard work and labor, whenever we as a people start to say, Look at what we've accomplished, the Lord says, Think again. If we have accomplished anything in this world, it is simply by the grace of a loving God. The things that we sell and trade, it it, it all comes from creation. It all comes from what God has done. The ingenuity to do so. The minds to think through things. To, to, To maintain the business that we maintain. It all comes from Him. We would have nothing without him it is all his glory and not the glory of man and that's part of the problem of tire is like so many nations before it and after it it raised itself up in massive pride it's an american problem it's a european problem it's a russian problem it's an israeli problem it is a mankind problem this issue of pride God says, Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Interesting that He glorifies Jesus. What does that tell you? Jesus is God. (laughs) Isaiah 48, verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. Note that. It will not be for Israel's sake. God loves His people Israel, but He's not going to save Israel or do what He's about to do in Israel for Israel's sake. He's going to do it for His own namesake. He loves you and me as children, as, as His sons and daughters in Christ, but He's not saving us for our sake. He's saving us for His name's sake, That it might bring glory and honor and praise to Him. He says, For my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. Now, you know, that's an affront to prideful man. It truly is. The more prideful you are, the more disgusted you are when you think about God wanting to be glorified. God desiring glory for himself. Well, who does he think he is? (laughs) God. He has every right. But to the prideful person, that just comes off as prideful. The prideful person is the one who says, How come God gets all the glory? Who does he think he is demanding all the power? Isn't he the one being prideful? I mean, that could only be be spoken by prideful man. Be careful. I almost didn't type that, by the way. I I typed that question in my notes and stopped and went back and went, (laughs) I don't want to say, isn't he the one being prideful? But people will look at God that way and say, how dare he? Or who does he think he is? Or why does he? And and all the questions thrown up to God. Listen, O man, O woman, before you judge the Lord. He knows what we have talked about many times. We talked about it again on Sunday. That only God can handle glory. We can't. We are pathetic when it comes to being honored. To being glorified. To being lifted up. He knows this. He knows that He alone can handle it. And He knows that we are crushed by it. So He says, glorify Me. You were made to worship, so worship Me. Don't worship other people. You'll crush them in doing it. Don't lift yourself up. You will be brought down. So it is about His glory and not ours. Isaiah started off his prophecy with this. Chapter 2, verse 17. He said, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of man will be abased. That wasn't just for Isaiah's day. That's a worldwide, global, historical truth. He said, the Lord alone will be exalted. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.28, The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now, we can take pride in one thing. We can take pride in this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse thirty, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I can take pride in one thing. I can take pride in the Lord. I am so proud of my God. I am so proud of my Jesus. I am so blessed by who He is. Chapter 23 going on. Verse 10 The Lord is the one doing this. And He says, Overflow your land, or literally pass over your land, like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more restraint. Now that word restraint is probably better translated shipyard or harbor. Because what He's saying is to the land of Tarshish and to the land of the Nile, what He's saying to all these merchants and people around the world, He's saying the harbor's gone. You might as well go back home. Because if you arrive on the shores of Tyre, there will be nothing left. He has stretched his hand out, verse 11, over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. He has said, you shall exalt no more, O crushed virgin daughter of Zidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. He's being a little ironic in calling Tyre the crushed virgin daughter of Zidon because this commercial trading port was anything but virginal. But he also, note, note, he mentions Canaan. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. Why is Canaan coming into this? By the time of this prophecy, Isaiah's day, Canaan had been destroyed for the most part by Israel pushed out of the land, driven back why are they here? the word, the name Canaan means merchants or traffickers so that's that's inherent in the name Canaan And so what, what is going on here is a broader judgment than simply that of Tyre we hear a godly principle in the fall of Tyre in this woe against Tyre there's a godly principle that's repeated throughout Scripture and keep your seats and listen for a minute the godly principle is that faith always conquers finance. In the same way the land of Canaan was conquered by God's people Israel, so trust outweighs trade. And it is one of the most difficult thing for things for Christians to accept and believe. And I have mentioned this before as for many of us the last stronghold before we finally become completely owned by God is our money. It's our trade, it's our business, it's our finances. I'm faithful in everything else but God. <laughs> I can't afford, I can't afford to tithe. I, I can't afford it. I've looked at the budget. I've told y'all in here before, I said that exact thing to Cheryl. She heard it many times. She would say, We really need to start tithing. And I'd say, Have you looked at the budget? I can't make ends meet right now. How do you expect to do that? And it's an issue. And if you have any squirminess even right now in your heart, it's because this is an issue. God says, I want you to trust me and believe in me. And we go, yes, Lord. No, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to believe you for everything, but don't ask me. Don't ask me to give up my provision. And it's so ironic because the Lord would say to you and me, Where do you think the provision came from? Exactly. I mean, really? You worked it out yourself? You think you got hired? You got that job? Have you really looked at your resume? (laughs) Faith over finance. Tire goes down as a commercial port. Lifted up, exalted on high because of their pride in their financial dealings. And the Lord would have you and He would have me invest in His perfect provision. It is always perfect. Trusting in Him to provide rather than trusting in merchant-minded capitalism. Does that sound (laughs) anti-American? You know, capitalism is probably the best motivator for the success of a nation in an imperfect sinful world. I would agree with that. I would say, of, of, of all the motivators of nations down through history, capitalism, it works. Because it's all about you're motivated to do because you can achieve. Because you have the freedom to make money and then to make more money. And then to invest that money in, 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 in capitalistic enterprise to make more money. And from a human flesh perspective, it works. It does work. When you shut it down, and part of our financial problem right now is government trying to shut down capitalism, which is leading to messes everywhere in an imperfect and simple world, which is where we live. So it's not such a bad thing. Return on investment, you know, reward for hard work, income for ingenuity. But is this what God wants His people to learn? God helps those who help themselves. It's not even in the first book of opinions, Game.
1: You can't find it in the
0: book of Hezekiah, which is not a book in the Bible. It's not there. What we hear is the exact opposite. In fact, in the next chapter that we'll get to next week, Isaiah 25, verse 4, you have been a defense for the helpless a defense for the needy in his distress a refuge from the storm a shade from the heat Cheryl was picking up David today from preschool or yesterday from preschool she calls me I'm I'm home studying the phone rings Cheryl I think you know it's an emergency I pick up what's up what's going on I gotta tell you what David just said (laughs) Cheryl's in the car with little David three years old three years old and, and coming home from preschool and she's reading him a little valentine that he got from a friend yesterday Kiana Is her name. I'm keeping my eye on that girl, Kiana. I don't even know who she is. And so Cheryl's reading it. She said, I was reading this to David, and I said, It says to David from Kiana. And David said, Two Davids? There are two Davids? (laughs) And so then Cheryl says, No, 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 not not two Davids like two. It means it means four David. And David goes, Four David? There's four Davids? (laughs) And that's the problem with capitalism right there. That's it. It's never quite enough. It's very hard to be content because it's always about more. I mean really, to be honest, when is enough ever enough? If if someone came up to you and said, "I'd like to hand you $500,000." Who in their right mind would say, "No, I've got plenty. Thanks.
1: No okay. thanks." It's
0: just not how we think. It's great motivation for the GDP. But it's not great motivation for my EKG. (laughs) When it comes to heart level spiritual stuff, to be driven by and led by financial things is not a good thing. In the kingdom to come, in the perfect world under the rule and authority of Jesus, it will not be greed that motivates, it will be righteousness. And it's going to be perfect. I'm going to say one more thing about finance, and we'll move on from this. But I I need to say this. I know a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, who are very well off. And you wouldn't have any idea because God knew that they knew how to handle what He was giving them. I know a lot of, of, of Christians, believers, who are not well off. And God knew they needed not to have very much. (laughs) You know, it, it has very little to do with the quantity of money that the Lord provides for you. What it has to do with is the quality. That is how you handle what He has given you. That's the issue. It's a heart issue. It's not a pocketbook issue. So when we come to finance, the question is, how does that balance out against your faith? What do you do with what He's given you? Is there trust in what He's given you? Is there faith? in how you handle what he has provided you. That's that's the issue. Verse thirteen. Verse thirteen he says, Behold the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people which was not. Assyria appointed it for their desert or for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers, they stripped its palaces, and they made it a ruin. Now this is amazing in an historical twist of fate, if you could call it that, though not fate An historical twist that only a prophet could express. It would not be mighty Assyria that overran Tyre. It would be mighty Babylon. But Assyria had taken out Babylon. So when Isaiah is giving this prophecy, Assyria was the great world power. You know that. We've been talking about that. They were the world power. Prior to Assyria rising to power, Babylon was an ancient, ancient nation. Had been there a long time. In fact, originally Babylon stretched from from the upper part um, of the Persian Gulf. So if you go to the tip of the Persian Gulf and head north, all of that area, all the way up to what is Turkey today, was Babylonia. Chaldea, the land of the Chaldeans. When the Assyrians rose to power, they drove the Chaldeans down into the marshy lowlands down south of where the city of Babylon would be and south down toward the Persian Gulf. And they maintained that whole northern area, which would be all of Iraq, parts of Iran, parts of Turkey, parts of Syria, that whole region. But the Babylonians who were shoved down to the south would not forget that they were there before Assyria. And they would rise up and wipe out Assyria, and it would be Babylon who fulfills this prophecy. Not Assyria. It would be a nation that was not capable of doing this at the day when Isaiah said this is what's going to happen. It was Babylon that did it. Pretty remarkable situation. What Isaiah is saying basically in verse 13 and mentioning the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, is he's saying to Tyre, watch out, Chaldea, this desert wasteland, <laughs> those people are going to be your ruin. Skipping right over Assyria. Verse 14, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed. Now in the day, in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for seventy years, like the days of one king. At the end of seventy years it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. Take your harp, walk about the city, O forgotten harlot. Pluck the strings skillfully, sing many songs that you may be remembered. Wait a minute, I I thought Tyre was the virgin daughter of Zidon. No, we're seeing the real character now. Harlot is a better better description of the kind of place that Tyre was. And it will come about at the end of 70 years, verse 17. Well, wait, I'll come to that in a minute. Again, this prophecy was fulfilled by Babylon. The mention of 70 years is interesting this 70 years will parallel, Tyre's forgottenness will parallel the 70 years of Judah's captivity in Babylon. Same exact 70 year period. While Judah's driven out, Tyre is gone. In fact, all the nations have been overrun by Babylon for those 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, 539 B.C., Cyrus led the army of the Medes and the Persians, wiped out, at that point, Babylon... And Tyre was allowed to become a city again, a trading port again, though it will never, ever achieve what it was before. Judah would come back to life. A lot of these nations that had been crushed by Babylon under Cyrus the Persian would be given the freedom to rise back up and and be their own nations once again. And that's what he's talking about here, that 70 years will go by. But he says this, verse 17, It will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre, then she will go back to her harlot's wages and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. Now this is the only place you're going to find this in the Bible where the wages of the harlot are holy to the Lord. What does that mean? It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. I read that and I just went, wow. Okay, so, so ill-gotten gains of, uh, of a harlot are going to be special godly money? Uh, what are you saying here? Isaiah is comparing trade without trust to whoring. He's saying, here's the problem with Tyre. It's no different than a house of prostitution, this city, because it is trade with no trust in God. So that's, that's the issue, the core problem. Ezekiel goes much further than this, um, than Isaiah. He even uses the king of Tyre as a, as a symbol or as an image, a representation of Satan. And then we'll go on to describe Satan. When we get to the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that. The same judgment against Tyre comes out of the mouth of Ezekiel although he's more contemporary to Tyre's falling. But Isaiah is saying here that the trade and the commercialism of Tyre would no longer be selfish gain, but would be for the service of the Lord and His people. Okay, The money made in Tyre, the commerce, would now be used for God's own people. When? It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. Turning your Bibles over to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Keep your fingers ready to turn. We're going to do a little bit of turning over the next few minutes together. When we went through the the book of Psalms, Psalm 45 is a fascinating one because it is the psalm, it's a wedding song. Probably written, at least historically, as a wedding song for King Hezekiah. And what we think was his marriage to the daughter of a prominent person of the day, Isaiah. Isaiah's daughter marrying King Hezekiah, and this being their wedding song, and yet, it it is recognized by the old rabbis and by the New Testament as a messianic prophecy of a king and his bride. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 45. Your throne, O God is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, did you catch that? The prophet is talking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then down in verse 7, he says, Therefore, God, your God, O God. <laughs> He's talking to God about God who is his God. What? The Hebrew writer takes this and he explains exactly what's going on. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Of the Son, he says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. He's talking about the Son. This passage is talking about Jesus. So, this King in Psalm 45 is Jesus, Messiah. The God talked about in Psalm 45 is the King, is King Jesus. So, going on in verse 8 of Psalm 45, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house and then the king will desire your beauty because he is your lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre, there they are, will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. What does Isaiah say? Back in chapter 23, kind of keep a finger in both places, but in 23, verse 17, it will come about at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and then she will go back to her harlot's wages, and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth, and her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. And in Psalm 45, The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. So, what he's saying in the prophecy of Isaiah that we see reflected in Psalm 45 is the commerce of Tyre will turn and be used for righteous purposes. At one place, Jesus said, Use ungodly wealth for righteousness. You know, you cannot touch a dollar bill without touching cocaine. Did you know that? Every dollar that's circulated throughout our country has remnants, has traces of cocaine on it. That's how bad the drug trade is. And you might say that and you might be wanting to empty out your wallets. If you do, just empty it out on the piano. I will take care of it for you. (laughs) I'll get rid of it. Nope, I have no problem with that. (laughs) Unrighteous mammon. Money is unrighteous. But use it for righteousness. The best investment you can ever make with every dollar you have is find a way to use it to the glory of God. That's the whole idea here. Now, back in the psalm, I want to read just a little bit more because it's so cool. Verse 13 says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you, that is to the king. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. This whole thing is a wedding picture. It's a wedding song. Ephesians 5 verse 25 tells us Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The context, Paul says, the church is the bride, and Christ is the king. And so in the same way that Hezekiah was king, and Isaiah's daughter probably was his bride, so Christ is the king and the church is the bride. Psalm 45, I believe, is that prophetic picture of that very thing. Revelation 19, verse 8 says it was given to her, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we're clothed with righteousness. And that's the picture of the church and the marriage feast. And it's such a cool picture. And if you want to get more out of Psalm 45, go back and listen to it. It's online. It's a marvelous, marvelous teaching. Verse 17, he says... I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forevermore. Now, you might say, Rick, why did we just trail off to Psalm 45? Because that's exactly where Isaiah is headed at the end of chapter 23. Hold that thought. I'll explain it in a few minutes. Let's go on. We've now heard the entire book of burdens. Okay? Okay. We've gone through uh, judgment given against 10 different nations and against Jerusalem. And Sunday we talked about the two stewards, Shebna and Eliakim, judgment about their situation. What's interesting to me is that these judgments are all connected. In fact, if you want to connect the dots, there are three particular judgments that tie, I believe, all of the burden, the book of burdens together. Three nations that clearly have representation in the Bible, that that are a picture of something else. Think about this just for a moment. We're going to go to chapter 24, but I want to share this with you. The first nation where the judgment begins to come down is Babylon. Babylon is or represents the religion of man. Babylon represents religion. Babylon always has represented religion. Babylon going all the way back. And when we talked about the bird and we looked at these things. The first uh, region where paganism was birthed was in Babylon. Idolatry started in Babylon. Nimrod, his wife Semiramis, they were the first pagans literally against God, opposed to God. Paganism grew up in Babylon. Babylon is a picture of world religion. And it's like all world religion, it's not based on divine revelation, but on man's imaginations. And that's a problem. If you keep a finger there, over in 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3 has got to be. Yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warns against religion and what religion would do to the world in the world in the last days. Listen to this realize this paul says second timothy 3 verse 1 that in the last days difficult times will come you bible students you should be very familiar with this For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You know what he's just done in those five verses? Paul has described religion. That's what that's a picture of. That's why the world calls the church hypocrites, by the way. That's the problem with religion rather than a relationship with Jesus. Is religion does all of these things. Not the least of which is in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And I think if there's any judgment on the church in these last days, that's it. That's the big one. The biggest problem that the Christian church has in the world today, and let me narrow it, because the Christian church in the world is doing some mighty things. Christianity in America is very limited. Why? Because we are holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. We're denying the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and collectively as a church. We're denying that God actually has the power to bring about all the things that He's called us to do. And without that power, we will not accomplish what He is calling us to do. Without the power of His Spirit, we'll never get there. Oh, we may get there because of His grace. By grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourself. Yeah, we'll get there because of grace. But we're not going to accomplish what He's called us to accomplish without the power of His Holy Spirit. If we play religion, we play right into the hands of Babylon. The fall of Babylon is consummated. In Revelation 14, verse 8, we hear, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. In Revelation, it's also referred to as mystery Babylon, the mysterious religion. It's all that kind of getting into religious things that are very, you know, mysterious and esoteric and strange and not completely understood but oh isn't it cool to be in that void you know and, and that's that's religion in the world today that's a lot of the spirituality that we see in the northwest babylon but midway through the judgments we come to another nation that represents something else egypt babylon represents the religion of man egypt represents the natural state of man The nature of man. You always go down to Egypt. (laughs) You always go up to Jerusalem and you go down to Egypt. And biblically speaking, Egypt is a picture of the natural world. Egypt recalls, brings to mind, bondage. Like the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, so we are in bondage to the natural man. We are in bondage to sin in the world. It's Pharaohs were viewed as gods lording it over the people. Israel was delivered from Egypt in the same way we are delivered from the natural man, delivered from the things of the world. John said in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all this is not from the Father but of the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. So we have Babylon, religion. We have Egypt, the natural world. You could maybe even compare that to humanism. And then we end all the judgments with Tyre. Tyre representing commercialism. Religion, humanism, commercialism. Religion... The natural man and commerce. Tire representing literally the pursuit of happiness through material things. And it is absolutely pervasive in our society. Even now, what are people asking in this election cycle? Who as president can best lead the economy out of our slump? Who has the best experience as a CEO? As the economy shifts slightly, as the stock market goes up, People are starting to say, hey, if, if the economy goes up, Obama's chances of staying in office go right up with it. And, and with the Republican candidates, it's all about who can, who can bring us out of this, this terrible financial mess. Why? Why? Uh, You know why. I shouldn't even ask the question. I'm going to anyway. Why isn't there a candidate on either side who is saying that they can lead us back to God spiritually through Jesus Christ? That's what the country needs. Not to get out of the financial slump. I I said this probably every week for the last several, but I know a couple weeks ago that if we would focus on Jesus, the economy would take care of itself. God would take care of that. He would give the provision. But we are so focused on the provision itself instead of on the provider. We are tired. And it's getting tiring. (laughs) Tiresome. It truly is. In First Timothy chapter six, I'll just read this to you, verse seven. Paul says, We have brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now I know he meant food, covering, and my iPhone. I'm just sure of it.
1: <laughs> but
0: those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. That's not, that's not judgment, that's just truth. For the love of money, note that, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Don't fight the good fight of finance. Fight the good fight of faith. And I just find that so amazing. That across the book of burdens, we start out with Babylon, we find ourselves dealing with Egypt, and we end up with Tyre. We've got religion, we've got humanism, and we've got commercialism, and all three are the greatest ills of the world. These three areas are what block people, both personally and corporately, block people from the true power of God. Or even from a knowledge of Jesus Christ. No wonder this is a book of... Of Burdens. Now, technically, the Book of Burdens is ended, but in reality, all of these national judgments are simply precursors to the grand finale. Note this Chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27, which we won't do all of, we're just going to look at 24 quickly, they're placed after the woes and warnings of chapters 13 through 23. And the next few chapters, the next four, 24, 25, 26, 27, these have been called the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse. Not the Little Destruction, because Apocalypse does not mean destruction. Apocalypse in the Greek means unveiling. So this next section, and we're just going to kind of dip our feet in it, is the Little Revelation. Call that because it's in miniature what John gives us in 22 chapters at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. You get in miniature in these four chapters. Let's just look at chapter 24. It gives this majestic overview. Just this chapter. An amazing overview of the tribulation, of the second coming of Christ, and of the judgment that he brings. Follow it through. It is absolutely obvious and remarkable. Behold, verse 1, chapter 24. The Lord lays the earth waste devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. Suddenly we're not talking about a single nation. Suddenly we're in a big picture. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, and the creditor like the debtor. What exactly does that mean? Everything's level. Level playing field. When the end hits, when the tribulation begins, it's not going to matter how much money you have. It's not going to matter how big a name you have. It's not going to matter who you are. Everybody will be on level playing field. It's going to be completely flipped upside down. Now there are some different interpretations going into chapter 24. Some suppose that Isaiah is talking about the earth in between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Some believe that this section in here is actually talking about earth back then when things were completely corrupt and destroyed. And they compare this with Jeremiah chapter 4. And I don't think that's correct because this isn't looking back. This prophecy is looking ahead. Another interpretation, if you happen to follow along the teachings of Seventh-day Adventism, Ellen G. White, she taught that chapter 24 is the millennial... Uh, or the millennium, not the millennial kingdom. she didn't believe in that. She didn't believe that there were promises that would be fulfilled to Israel. What she taught and seventh day Adventism, this is at the root of that, she taught that when Satan is cast down to the bottomless pit, that pit is the earth. And then for a thousand years he just rails and goes nuts in the earth and the earth that's, and, and this is a thousand year uh, reign of Satan on the earth, I guess. And then he wanders around there until ultimately he's cast in the lake of fire. Well, that's Ellen G. White's interpretation. It's incorrect. Others teach that this chapter is specifically a judgment on Israel. So when you start having all these different interpretations of a Bible chapter, what do you do? How do we rightly handle the word of truth? I've given you this before. It is the best tool to take into Bible study. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let the interpretation come from Scripture itself. And we're going to do that. Thirteen times the prophet uses the word translated earth in chapter 24. Thirteen times the word earth is used. More than any other chapter in Isaiah. So he's very honed in on the word for earth. The Hebrew word for earth is aretz, Which is why some think, okay, aretz." wait a minute. Who knows the technical legal name of the nation of Israel today? It's Eretz Israel. The land of Israel. Eretz meaning land or it can mean earth. But some say, oh, Eretz. So this whole thing must be a prophecy against Israel. But you got to go a step further. You go down to verse 4. And it says, the earth, Eretz, mourns and withers. Then it says, Tebel in the Hebrew, the world. And that Hebrew word, Tebel, translated here, the world, literally means the world. The world. okay so we've just been vaulted into realizing this is not about Eretz Israel this is about Israel this is devastation and destruction certainly in the land but it is also global this is a worldwide situation that's taking place and chapter 24 speaks of the darkest days of earth's history speaking of literally the great tribulation and I would place it in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period for you prophecy students Ironside calls this a scene of unparalleled destruction and desolation. In fact, it's just as Jesus said would happen. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will. Follow it through, verse 3. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled. For the Lord has spoken His Word. By the way, when the Bible says... The Lord has spoken His Word. Guess what? This is irrevocable. This is not something that is not going to happen or can be somehow averted if we can cut down on carbon emissions. (laughs) Verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. (laughs) For they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Gang, I, I know an environmentalist would probably love verse 5. That the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. But the Lord goes on to say what pollution truly is. It's violation of the laws, statutes, and everlasting covenant of the Lord. Well, wait a minute. If it's a violation of law, statute, covenant, wouldn't that mean that this is talking about Israel? No. No. In fact, the word laws here is not Torah, it's Torot, which is the plural form of the word, and doesn't just speak of the singular Torah that God gave Israel. The Torot speaks of the universal laws of moral conduct that was given by God to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. I'm not going to take the time to read it right now. Genesis 9, 1-17, God gave a covenant. It's called the Noahic Covenant. And that covenant that He gave for Noah, Jews today believe that Gentiles, if you want to be saved or if you want to be considered as holy by God, you keep the Noahic covenant. That's for you. The Mosaic covenant, covenant given through Moses, the law, Torah, that's for us. But Torah is for you. And that's what's being described here. God gave moral laws. He gave man conscience. And man has violated conscience right and left. And because of this, we have polluted the world. It's sin that pollutes the world, not CO2. It's not trash. It's not litter. It's sin. And it's very clear about this. Verse 6, Therefore a curse devours the earth. Wow. Remember what God said the moment He finally caught up with Adam and Eve there in the garden, hiding and covering themselves? He said cursed be the earth those who live in it are held guilty therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left he says the new wine mourns the vine decays and all the merry hearted sigh this is again talking about all mankind The gaiety of tambourines ceases. Tom, you might like that verse. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. So Rachel's not playing, Jim. No more harp. And it says in verse 9, They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. Well, that's interesting. In Proverbs 31... We're told 31 verse 6 give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. But at this point in the great tribulation, people will not even be able to drink and forget. Even drinking will not have the effect of easing people's minds and relaxing people. I just, you know what? After all the earthquakes today, I just need a shot and I'll be good.
1: <laughs> it's
0: not going to work. The devastation will not be quelled by a tall, cool one. And by the way, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, the city of peace will have a different name. Verse 10, the city of chaos is broken down. City of peace is now the city of chaos. Every house is shut up so that no one or none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, that is Jerusalem again, and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings, note this, when the grape harvest is over. How does the book of Revelation refer to the harvest of grapes? You know the phrase, grapes of wrath. Revelation 14 verse 19 the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them in the great wine press of the wrath of God the wine press was trodden outside the city blood came from the wine press up to the horses bridles for a distance of 200 miles at the moment of Jesus second coming we're told in Revelation 19:15 he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the almighty Verse 14. Now suddenly, remember, no joy, no wine, no happiness, no goodness, no gaiety, it's all gone. All of a sudden, they raise their voices. They shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. Who are they? We're told they raise their voices. And in this midst of the darkest days of the tribulation, suddenly, shouts of praise and glory and joy, songs of worship begin to be lifted up. These are a people who have obviously been looking for His coming. A people present on planet Earth in the dark days of the great tribulation. And they have been waiting and watching, perhaps reading... (laughs) Isaiah 24, and following these things as they happen. And they're waiting and watching. But note this, it's interesting. Verse 15 says, They sing praises from the east. You might note this in your Bibles. The word for east there is Ur. The Hebrew word Ur, and it means the region of light. Which is why they translate it the east, because you know, sun rises in the east, light to the east. But it's not east, it's it's Ur. The region of light, same word. It's used by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine verse two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Or, the great light, the region of light. What was the region of light? That was the Galilee of the Gentiles. It was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and those people would see a great light, and they did when Jesus came, because he came to Galilee of the Gentiles, and the people of the region saw that that or that great light. And the end of the tribulation, the remnant of Israel will be east of Israel, tucked away in the wilderness. And they will be singing songs of glory and praise as they, I believe, see Jesus coming. They're witnessing. And that's what's happening now in verses 14-16. through Suddenly, in the midst of all this devastation and desolation and tribulation, suddenly songs of worship and praise begin to be lifted up because those looking for Jesus will see Him coming in the clouds of glory. But it's not just Israel. Verse 14 refers to from the west, from the sea praises are heard. Verse 16 goes on and says, coming from the coastlands, that word coastland also translated islands. So perhaps in addition to the glorious song of praise coming out of that hiding place in the wilderness where Israel is singing, the remnant, also tribulation saints who are among the islands or to the west having somehow survived to this point in the tribulation, begin to sing songs of worship and praise as well. One person does not join them in this worship, at least in this prophecy, and that person is Isaiah. Read on. But I say, Woe to me! Woe to me! Alas for me! The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. "'Terror and pit and snare confront you, "'O inhabitant of the earth,' he cries. "'And then it will be that he who flees "'the report of disaster will fall into the pit, "'and he who climbs out of the pit "'will be caught in the snare. "'For the windows above are open "'and the foundations of the earth shake. "'The earth is broken asunder. "'The earth is split through. "'The earth is shaken violently. "'The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. "'It totters like a shack.' For its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. Isaiah, we're excited. Suddenly there's songs of praise. Christ is coming. And Isaiah, in this vision, he can't handle anymore. He is distraught. When it says, woe to me, literally, he's saying, leanness to me. Leanness. Leanness. I'm shriveling up at the sight of this vision. I can't take this. His heart is so incredibly compassionate that though he hears the song of the remnant of his own people Israel, he hears the song of salvation and praise that they're singing going up, what Isaiah cannot miss, what he cannot avoid or ignore is the treacherous of the world who are dying in their sin. That for Isaiah in this moment outweighs even the glorious song of salvation. I hear Paul in that crying out in Romans chapter 9, I wish that I could be a curse if it would save my brothers and sisters Israel. If I could go to hell and they could be saved, I would do it, Paul says. Isaiah is saying, yes, I hear the songs of praise, but the world is going down. And all of the treacherous, all of these filthy sinners who I wish could be saved are going down in their sin. And it tears Isaiah's heart out. I told you when we started, it's stunning to me how compassionate this prophet is. But again, you cannot be in the Word of God and close a blind eye to the dying, the lost, the sinful, and the distorted of this world. You know, while they're having parties for Whitney Houston, I'm thinking, how sad. And I don't even know where her heart was. I don't know where her faith was. I know that you know drugs, alcohol, that was involved. I don't know where she was with the Lord. So I'm not making a judgment there. I'm just saying, what a tragic loss of, of of her life. It's not something to celebrate. And I came down, I I guess the reason I've been coming down hard on this the last several times we've been studying together is because I keep seeing it coming out of Isaiah's heart. This whole issue of the lost. I went back and I thought about Sunday. I hope I wasn't too heavy handed when I was saying, we should have broken hearts over the lost constantly. We should bear a burden of the lost of the world. We should weep and be in anguish for those who are not saved. You know, and I, I walked home going, that wasn't a very happy thought. You know? But then I come to Isaiah and I see him looking at sinners in the world. You see, what, what the world thinks is that church people would look at them going down and go, yeah, you're getting yours. It's the exact opposite. We need a heart like Isaiah's to be saying every time we see someone going down in their sin, no, no. We want to see you saved. Verse 21. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and they will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. The host of heaven on high are going to be punished. Who's that? Paul tells us. The world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, will be punished. The demonic horde of Satan that is at work both on earth and in the heavenly realms are going to be punished for it. The rulers of the air. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And we were just, was it? Last I don't know if it was you and I talking about this. No, it was Rod last night. I was talking with Rod Gilmore and, and he was saying, you know, I really think the Bible talks about the Prince of Persia. This demonic presence. And and Gabriel was being sent to Daniel, and he couldn't get to Daniel. He needed to call in Michael's help to fight through the Prince of Persia so that he could get to Daniel, this prince of the power of that region. Demonic power. And there is demonic power in all sorts of areas in the world. And in this region, there is a demonic power, gang. Which I remind you is why the Bridge Christian Fellowship was called to be right here on the northern tip of North Whitby Island. That there might at least be a little flashlight in all this darkness. And I pray the little flashlight becomes a big spotlight. And then becomes a beacon. And then just continues to spread out and push back the darkness. Uh, But the prince of the power of the air and the powers of the air, the the world, the the heavenly uh, rulers are going to be punished along with, he says, the world rulers. And note this, they're going to be gathered like prisoners in a dungeon and they're going to be confined for a time. And then after many days, they're going to be punished. What's that talking about? The word dungeon there in the Hebrew is bor, B-O-R, and it means well, cistern, or pit, and what it indicates is a holding tank. All of these rulers of the earth and of the air are going to be stuffed into this holding tank for a time, held there, to be punished at a later date. How long? Exactly. You nailed it. Revelation 20.13, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is after the millennial kingdom. Anyone of, of earth who dies in their sin, through the tribula- before the tribulation up to the end of the tribulation, before the thousand year reign of Christ begins, all people who die in sin and rebellion to Christ will wait that thousand years will be held in confinement, as it were, for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, the great white throne is established, is set up there in heaven, and that is Judgment Day for all those who want to be judged on what they've done. Judgment of deeds. Revelation 20 describes that uh, explicitly. It's going to include all those who died without Christ, history past, history present, history future, And it will include those who died in rebellion during the Millennial Kingdom. Those who raise up in rebellion at the end of the Millennial Kingdom will die, will be confined, and will be raised up for final judgment. I was thinking about how I was going to share that. It's heavy, it's serious, and to an unbelieving person it would sound typically religious right. Oh, yeah, you're all going to go into your thousand-year kingdom, and we're all going to be confined to prison. Whatever, you know. and It's like the guy I heard on a call-in radio show just two days ago. <laughs> this guy was on a full-blown rant against the religious right. You guys were the ones against interracial marriage back in the day. You guys, you guys were the ones who were against uh, people having a women having a right to vote. And you guys are now the ones who are against homosexual marriage. You're always against something, you religious right. And I think, man, I almost called in. But I didn't trust myself. This guy's just going off. And what I wanted to do after I, after I settled down, because I was so offended. And then I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. What I would love to say to someone who says, Jesus is judgmental and God's just... " I, I would love to say, why do you think Jesus Christ came in the first place? So that you could be judged? No. He came so you could be saved. And the one area that I want to be right as a Christian is the area of grace. That's somehow... And it's a work of the devil. Somehow the, the message of grace has gotten twisted so that the world doesn't see grace when they see the church. They they see judgment and they see and you know, granted, this is true. The thousand year reign, yes, those who die in rebellion are going to be held and they're gonna be judged, and it's not what I want, it's not what Isaiah wants, it's not what Jesus wants. It is not his desire. In fact, Isaiah forty-two, verse six. Another Messianic prophecy says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Listen, God is talking to Jesus. And in the next verse, Isaiah 42, verse 7, He says, I have called you to do this, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in the darkness from the prison, or literally, the pit. Jesus came the first time to pull people out of the pit, out of the pit of their own sin, out of the pit of rebellion, out of the pit of judgment, to pull them out by grace that they could be saved. And the pit is a holding place for the rebellious. It is, I believe, the torment side of Hades that is still fully functional today. And I believe the pit represents the exhaustion of God's holy patience. There will come a day, there is a day where God says, Enough. Enough. Verse 23 says, The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Gang, that is not spiritual, that is literal. There is no reason to say, oh, it's it's a vague kind of, a it's talking about heaven. No, it's Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And His glory will be before His elders. It's a marvelous end to that chapter because what is it that abases the moon and shames the sun? It is His glory. It is the brightness of His glory. And that's what's going to come into play at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns in all of His glory. One last thing. I want you to put this all together. There is an epic story arc that covers this entire section. Going all the way back to chapter 13 and running all the way, as we'll see next week, to chapter 27. If we get there, we'll, we'll see. But from chapter 13 to chapter 27 of the book of Isaiah, the book of burdens, and then lead, leading into this, this section called the little revelation or the little apocalypse... This whole thing has this beautiful story arc to it. Follow this through. Isaiah 13-21, through 21, we see the nations of the world judged over time. Isaiah 22, we see Jerusalem judged. But in the same chapter, we see Shebna judged and Eliakim raised up. What's that all about? Think about this. The key of the house of David is removed from one steward, a wicked self-serving steward, and placed on the shoulders of another steward, a faithful one. Just as the authority of Satan at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his authority was removed. He's still functioning in the world. He's still doing the things in the world, but all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus said, has been given to me. When did he say that? After his resurrection. So chapter 22, we see this interesting shift take place as all the hopes of the glory of Israel and her future salvation hang on Eliakim, whose name means God Raises. Eliakim is described as a peg driven in a firm place and Jesus, gang, would would die that way, cutting off the load of sin hanging on him. We talked about that on Sunday. So we have judgment of nations coming all the way up to the first century. We have Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected. We have Jerusalem fall. All of this described in Isaiah 22. Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But continue to follow the ark. Babylon to Egypt to Tyre. Tyre. Isaiah 23 comes under judgment. Commercial tire. And we have seen over the last 2,000 years, world economy of separate nations who interacted by some sense of trade get closer and closer and more and more interconnected until we are completely enmeshed. What happens with Greece affects our stock market. What's going on all over the world the world we have a, the, the global economy is here gang it's already here and we cannot get extricated from it and it is Tyre what happens to Tyre affected all the other nations what happens to Greece or what happens to Europe what happens in China what happens in America affects everybody and so this art continues and here we are Like Tyre, at the end of the times of the Gentiles. But we also know that Tyre, the daughter of Tyre, gives a gift to the king and his bride. At the close of the times of the Gentiles, the church, the bride of Christ, is caught up to our heavenly honeymoon. Then what happens? Chapter 24, Global Judgment. After that, songs of grace, salvation, and the final deliverance of Israel over the next three chapters. It's this absolutely Holy Spirit-inspired story from the beginning to end. And we see it right here in the book of Isaiah. And by the way, I agree with Isaiah. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name for You have worked wonders, plans, formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. God, You are amazing. Your word is astounding before our very eyes that we see these things. Lord, I don't believe Isaiah, for all of his wisdom and for all of his literary skill, was, was bright enough to, to figure out the, the outlay of this. This big epic story that is revealed before us. We've seen it before, Lord, we saw it all over in the Psalms. How you not only spoke through a verse or a chapter, but oftentimes through the arc of several chapters. And here we see it again in Isaiah. And Lord, it all is to Your glory. It all proclaims Your glory. It lifts up Your faithfulness. You are an awesome God. And we are in awe before You. And we pray, Lord, that You would fill us with the one pride we talked about earlier, and that is the pride of our Father. The pride of Jesus Christ. Let us only boast in Jesus. As we pray together in His name. Amen.